The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we do thank you so much that we have the privilege of confession of sin, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that we have uh, divine forgiveness, we have uh, recovery of divine fellowship, the filling of the Holy Spirit, so we can go forward in the spiritual life through learning doctrine. Now, Father, as we gather together to worship you this morning, through the study of your word, the highest form of worship there is, we pray that we might be able to focus, concentrate on these important doctrines, relate them to the issues of the day and the issues in our lives. For your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John 1, 9. No, you didn't come to the wrong place. We're still in Galatians. But we have to take a few little important rabbit trails now and then, and I think it's time we take an important one this morning. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we, li- we are living in a time right now where we're having to deal with a lot of issues related to forgiveness, to confession, and to uh, punishment. And I want to take a little time to address these issues because they're things that are on everybody's mind and everybody's thinking about, and we need to stop for a few minutes and just think about what the Word of God says. And the Word of God clearly addresses all of these issues, and they are indeed related to our subject at hand, which is the imputation of sin, the imputation of righteousness to Christ, and the whole concept of justification by faith alone. So when we come to 1 John 1, 9, the topic there is confession of sin and divine forgiveness. We're not talking about human forgiveness or human relationships in this passage. We're talking about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and advancing in the spiritual life. The basis for the particular principle of 1 John 1, 9 is found in the latter part of 1 John 1, 7. Let me read the whole verse for context. Remember, any text without a context is a pretext. You'll find a lot of people taking verses out of context in order to proof text a particular passage or particular issue, but that is uh, a false methodology. Verse 7 reads, But if we, that is believers, all through here the we refers to believers, walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that is uh, a metaphor for fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with one another. True biblical fellowship horizontal fellowship between believers. It's not simply social intercourse or social interaction between believers. We can go out to dinner, we can have a great time, we can party, we can go to sports events, we can go to festivals as believers, and we can have a great time, an enjoyable time together and have magnificent fun. But that is not Christian fellowship. That is what the average believer thinks of as Christian fellowship, but that is not necessarily, important word there, necessarily Christian fellowship. What we learn from this verse is 
If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the first priority is fellowship with God. If two believers are in fellowship with God, making the spiritual life issues the predominant issue and the important issue, if we're in, two believers are in fellowship with God, then the consequence of that is that we have fellowship with one another. The basis for Christian fellowship between fellowship between two believers is the both of them are first and foremost in fellowship with the Lord. The second issue is that you, we discover in other passages, which we don't have time to go into, Christian fellowship is defined in the Scripture as that which is centered around doctrinal issues, doctrinal discussions, and worship. Not simply having fun together as believers. The Scriptures are very clear. There's a difference between Christian social involvement and Christian fellowship. Do not fall into that category of people who confuse having a good time with Christian fellowship. The basis for all fellowship is then given in the last phrase, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The point is that the basis for all fellowship in dealing with sin in our lives is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the general principle. A general principle always is uh, the basis for a specific principle, not the other way around. So when people, and you'll discover people every now and then who want to make 1 John 1, 7 the dominant interpretive phrase for the entire chapter, that all you have to do is somehow believe Jesus cleanses you from sin, and that's all it takes. Once you're saved, if you want to deal with any sins after salvation, all you have to do is just trust Christ that He continually cleanses you, and don't worry about it. You don't have to confess, admit your sins, acknowledge your sins, or anything else. Some of these people would even say that was legalism. And they're making a hermeneutical error in using a general principle to be the dominant interpretive principle rather than the specific principle. 1 John 1, 7 just gives the basis for all divine forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 gives the more specific uh, procedure, which is admission or acknowledging sin. Now, we have to understand something about divine forgiveness if we're going to understand anything at all about the concept of forgiveness in general. And this, I find, is a concept that the average American is abysmally, not only abysmally ignorant of, but is completely wrong about. We introduce all sorts of sentimentalism, emotionalism, and subjectivity into the whole concept of forgiveness. So if we're going to understand anything in the human realm, we always start with God. That is the biblical methodology. You always start with God. One thing we learn about divine forgiveness is, first of all, divine forgiveness is not just because God thinks you're a wonderful person and you're awfully kind and generous most of the time. In fact, you just have a scintillating personality and all these little peccadilloes that you have are really inconsequential because you're just so nice and you really have good motives. God could care less about you and your motives and your scintillating personality. God is concerned about the issues of justice. Remember the issue is what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides, motivated by the love of God and supplied by the grace of God. So what the righteousness of God rejects, which is both Adam's original sin, the basis for your condemnation, and personal sin that you have committed, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God has to condemn. The issue here is legal, not experiential, a category, categorical distinction that the American people apparently cannot grasp, cannot understand, and that's one reason why they are 
in such subjectivity about theology as well. The, the issues are related. Forgiveness in the scripture is always based first and foremost on the payment of the penalty. God doesn't forgive you just because you're a nice person. He forgives you because Jesus Christ went to the cross and died as your substitute. He is the one who paid the penalty in full. So forgiveness is not uh, in spite of what you've done, you've done. It is not what you've done. The sins you've committed, Adam's original sin, are not ignored. Your personal sins are not ignored. They are paid for in full at the cross. So forgiveness in relation to phase one salvation, justification, is taken care of by the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Secondly, and I hope most of this is familiar to you, and so I can go through it fairly quickly. Secondly, it's based in 1 John 1, 9 on the admission of guilt. The admission of guilt, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter uh, how contrite you are. It doesn't matter how uh, much penance you want, how much self-flagellation is involved. God could care less about that. That is not the issue. In fact, when you go on an emotional jag of guilt because of the sin that you've committed, all you're doing is adding, saying, God, you know, Christ didn't pay it all. I've got to add to it by feeling bad for my sins. Feeling bad for your sins, begging God for forgiveness, asking God for, for forgiveness are all out of line. It does not say if we ask God to forgive us. It doesn't say that, does it? It says if we confess our sins. That means saying, Lord, I did this. I did that. I have committed this sin. I've committed that sin. The background here is that of the court of law. Up here, you have the bench, the Supreme Court of Heaven. Down here, you have you, the defendant. You're charged with committing a sin. You say, yes, I committed it. I'm guilty. Now, in the courtroom, when the defendant is sitting there, he may be glad he killed somebody. He may say, I'll kill him again. All he has to say is, yes, I'm guilty. And he, the plea that's entered into the record is guilt. Or if he says, I'm not guilty, but here, the, to hold the analogy, we're talking about confession, it's guilt. Now, it doesn't matter how he feels about it in a court of law, does it? What matters is what he's, his admission. Consequently, the penalty has, should have nothing to do with how the person feels about it because that's not the issue. In a court of law, the issue is not emotion. The issue is not feeling. The issue is not contrition. The issue is not penance. The issue is, did you do it or not? The issue is simply guilt. The issue is never emotion, and when emotion is brought into it, it deceives, it distracts, and it confuses. Let's look at a very classic example of this whole issue of forgiveness. Point one is it's based on payment. Point two is it's based on admission. And point three, it is minus emotion. Now, you may feel very badly about your sin. You may have committed some heinous sin that just shocked you down to the core of your being, and you may feel terrible about it. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. All I'm saying is that's not the point. That's not what cuts ice with God. That's not what God is looking at. The emotion is not germane to the issue at hand. 
You may, you may feel bad, you may not feel bad. All, that's fine, but I'm just saying that's not the issue. Turn with me in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to look at an underlying issue that I find um, never discussed by anyone, and I haven't heard anybody talk about it in the last few days, and that is the relationship between forgiveness and the payment of consequences. Does forgiveness mean the consequences are removed or not? And see, the average American who has not thought about forgiveness beyond the end of their nose thinks that forgiveness means that consequences are removed. And you, if you are a parent, know that that's just not true. If it is true for you as a parent, then I'm warning you right now, you're going to be a miserable failure as a parent, and your kids are really going to be little hillions when they grow up. Because if you forgive them and absolve them of every consequence as a kid, then they're just going to be wild as March hares and not understand anything about authority or absolutes. If you look in the dictionary under the term forgiveness, the first meaning that's listed is to excuse for a fault or offense. And I think that's the one that most people go to. And they think of excusing for a fault or offense, removing any, any consequence or personal consequence for the action. And the second meaning for forgiveness is to renounce anger or resentment. And that's really what, what forgiveness relates to, is renouncing any anger. When, when a sin is forgiven, it's no longer going to be an issue in terms of the relationship, but that does not necessarily remove uh, the consequences. For example, if I go out and commit murder, and then I say, Father, I committed murder, God forgives me instantly. I recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm cleansed from that sin. It's no longer an issue between me and God. Is that person still dead? You bet they are. Is their family still grieving? You bet they are. Have, uh, am I still going to go to jail? I better go to jail. That was something that people did not understand last winter during the execution of Carla Faye Tucker. The Bible clearly speaks about capital punishment as the penalty for certain crimes. And just because this young woman, and I believe she became a believer while she was in prison, and that uh, she had what the Bible would call true repentance in terms of her spiritual life, and she grew and had some level of spiritual maturity while she was in prison, that does not absolve her from the consequences of committing the murder. She wanted to do it, she did it, and she needed to pay the penalty for it. We learn this in the whole example of David and Bathsheba. Now, I'm not going to go through this verse by verse, but we have a situation when David failed in his responsibilities in verse 1 to be out at the battle with his army, and he's back at Jerusalem. In verse 2, when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around the roof of the, of the king's house, and from the parapet he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Eliam was one of his, his mighty men. Uriah was as well. And so David um, committed adultery with her, and we find the parallel with current circumstances to be quite telling. Here we have the leader of the land. He is the chief executive officer of Israel. Now, the difference between what's going on here and what's going on in our country is that um, in Israel, the king 
is under God because it's a theocracy. It's not a pure theocracy anymore. It's more of a theocratic monarchy. And the king makes the law. The king, in terms of uh, uh, in the human realm, is the final and ultimate authority in Israel. In the United States, the law is the absolute and final authority. We live under a system of the rule of law. And, and every single citizen, whether you are the president or congressman or uh, in the judicial branch, every single citizen is under the law, including the president. He is never to be above the law or determine the law. Now, in David's case, because he is the king, there's no authority over him except God, and, and he expresses his will through the prophet. So the prophet is the only one who has the ability to confront the king with his sin because the only the king here, David, commits two crimes. First crime is adultery, which is a capital crime under the Mosaic Law and punishable by the death penalty. And then to cover it up, so he's engaged in a cover-up and obstruction of justice. And in order to cover it up, uh, he commits the murder and has Uriah sent into the front lines of the battle in a place where it would be sure that he would, he would be killed in combat in order to cover it up. So he's guilty of two capital crimes. Now, under the Mosaic Law, he should be executed. But under a monarchy, who's going to execute the king? So there's only one person who has the right to commute the sentence, and that is God. And what God does is through the confrontation with the prophet Nathan, he confronts David with his, his sin, David admits his sin, and his, the death penalty is commuted. That means he did not have to die. Were the consequences removed? No, the consequences were not removed. What happens is that when Nathan, in chapter 12, when Nathan comes in to David to confront him with the sin, the first four verses, um, he uses an analogy, a little story about a rich man who has a, a great many flocks and herds, and a poor man has one little ewe lamb, and the rich man steals that ewe lamb. And so he's telling David this story, and in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. So David pronounces his own sentence right there. Restitution fourfold. God commutes the sentence, but there are fourfold consequence in the realm of divine discipline for David. First of all, the child that is born to Bathsheba dies. Secondly, one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his sister, David's daughter, Tamar, and that brings great grief upon David. Third, in retaliation for Amnon's rape of Tamar, Absalom, another brother, murders Amnon. And fourth, Absalom revolts against David, his father, leads a national revolt against him, runs him out of Jerusalem. David is on the run and hiding for quite a while before Absalom's army is finally defeated and Absalom is killed. So there are consequences. The consequences are not removed just because God forgives David. What are we saying here? We've seen the sin, and first of all, with David, there's the sin itself. 
Then the next thing that happens is the law of volitional responsibility comes in. The law of volitional responsibility is that whatsoever a man reaps, this he will also sow. In other words, there are natural devastating consequences to your sin that are going to um, come in, into play. As part of the natural consequences of David's sin, a number of things went on, including guilt and misery, and that's spelled out in Psalm 32 and Psalm 37. And David is absolutely miserable for a time, time period because of his sin. And that's simply the law of volitional responsibility. That has nothing to do with divine discipline yet. Then, David admits his sin and receives divine forgiveness. So now his spiritual life is restored and he has a personal relationship with the Lord again. But the consequences are not removed. Now the Lord has three options when we admit our sins to Him. Option number one is to continue the discipline at the same severity as it was initially. So nothing may happen. You may still go through all of the negative consequences uh, as a result of that particular sin. Secondly, God may in grace reduce the penalty. You're still going to go through a certain amount of suffering. And now that you're in fellowship, all suffering for discipline is converted into suffering for blessing because now you're able to apply doctrine to that suffering and it can accelerate your spiritual growth. So it may be reduced by God's grace. He may uh, reduce the penalty. That's what he did with David. He reduced it from capital punishment to fourfold consequences. I don't know. I think I would have rather gone through the capital punishment. David was pretty miserable for a while, but God still used him to communicate a tremendous amount of doctrine, to write scripture and all of these other things. And then third, God may remove those consequences in the divine discipline in its entirety. But that is determined by the Supreme Court of Heaven alone. Now in our nation, we're under the rule of law. God is not going to intervene through specific divine revelation to remove anyone's penalty. So we have a president who has committed certain uh, actions. It is not his sexual peccadilloes, gross as they may be, that are the problem. The problem is that we live under a nation with a rule of law. That law applies equally to every single citizen. If you or I were to be called before a grand jury, no matter what the issue is, whether we were the one accused or not, if we gave false or misleading information, or if we did not give, um, or if we did not give the whole truth, remember there's an oath at the beginning that you swear to give the the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and we uh, withhold information, we do not give the whole truth, then where would we find ourselves? We would find ourselves in jail. That's the consequence of breaking the law. It, it, in fact, in the military, if you commit some very minor infraction, but then you commit perjury or lie about it to cover it up, then you have compounded the original crime uh, and you've intensified it many times over and you may have had very little uh, penalty for the original infraction, but because you've lied and covered it up, you will be, uh, you, you may have a jail term or you may have serious consequences, much more serious consequences to deal with. So the issue for us is the rule of law and what does the law say. It is not an issue of sex. It is not an issue of what generated the problems. Uh, it is an issue of what takes place 
once an individual, a citizen, whoever he is, is called before a grand jury or into the courtroom and swears an oath and thereby has to uh, fulfill that oath in its entirety. Now, divine forgiveness is related to spiritual life issues. Admission of sin is one thing. But personal forgiveness is related to personal offenses and affronts to other human beings. So you can forget, God can forgive us when we confess our sins, admit our sins, and we are restored to fellowship and have the recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can then, if our sin has offended someone else or injured someone else, we may go to them and we may ask their forgiveness so that that past misdeed is no longer is an issue in that, in that personal relationship. But that does not absolve us if there are criminal penalties associated with that offense. So criminal activities and violation of the law uh, must be played out in a court of law, and, they have, and those decisions in the court of law have nothing to do with contrition or remorse. Now, it is a sign of the emotionalism and the subjectivity of our nation that we want to make decisions based upon someone's contrition and remorse. But that's not the issue. The issue in a court of law is, is to be purely objective. Did they violate the law or not? That is the issue. Criminal activities must be decided in a court of law, and contrition, remorse, confession are irrelevant to legal proceedings. Very few people understand that, and you don't find that articulated at all today, so pay attention to that. And finally, in conclusion, using contrition and remorse to avoid penalties is the oldest ploy in the book. Those of you who are parents, take note. When your kids do something wrong, and, and they get caught, and only after they are caught, what do you hear from them? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, I won't do it again. Please, please don't, don't, don't spank me, don't hit me, don't punish me. Their contrition and remorse is directly related to the level of punishment they fear encountering and has nothing to do with sorrow, true sorrow, true guilt over having committed the offense. They're just sorry they got caught and want to avoid all punishment. So when contrition and remorse come out after the discovery of the infraction or crime or whatever it is, we must be very suspicious about what its motive is. And is it indeed true contrition or not? And that can only be determined over lengthy time and has nothing to do with spiritual counseling, psychological counseling, or any other uh, farcical activity that is common in our therapeutic age today. So that brings us back to our study of the doctrine of imputations. What is the basis for the condemnation on every single human being? And that is found in the doctrine of imputations. We're studying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the concept of justification. Justification is the basis of our salvation. Justification is a, as it is used in the Bible, is a legal term. It is not an experiential term. It is not an emotional term. It is a legal term, the correct uh, theological word that is used to describe it is the word forensic. Forensic has to do with 
that which pertains to a court of law. Some of you remember there was a a television show several years back called Quincy MD. He was a forensic scientist, a forensic pathologist. That means that he would uh, do autopsies, etc., for the purpose of presenting evidence in a court of law related to the cause of death of an individual. So the term forensic has to do with uh, being with it being related to a court of law. So we talk about forensic justification as opposed to experiential justification. The, the whole concept of justification itself is based on a more fundamental doctrine, and that is the doctrine of imputations. There are seven imputations in the Scripture. Imputations are based on an even more fundamental doctrine, and that is the integrity of God which is composed of the righteousness, justice, and love of God as expressed through the grace of God. Remember what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God provides through the grace of God, namely the fullness of blessing of God as a love gift to the believer. But on the other hand, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but always motivated by the love of God so that the divine solution is provided through the grace of God. Now, our text that we are looking at to understand the whole concept of imputations is found in Romans 5.12. So let's turn there for our review so that we can get our focus back on our study. I know it's been a week, and last week was tough wading through these imputations. I could see it up here. I could see those wheels turning, smoke coming out of the ears. Several people were just, man, this is Sunday morning. It's 9.30. I just had one cup of coffee. This is serious stuff to be covering on a Sunday morning. So we're going to go over this again and again because this is so important. It's foundational to understanding our salvation and grace. And if you really want to get a hold of grace, then you have to understand this. If you don't understand this, you'll have a hard time ever being grace-oriented. So hang in there. We'll slug it out again and again. But we're going to make our way through this, understand it. You will come to understand it. It's not that difficult. It really isn't. I've slugged it out in the study the last three or four weeks, and it was a little tough for me to grasp some of these things as I began working through it. But now I, I, um, I don't have any trouble whatsoever. So it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of thinking it over and over again, and you will come to understand it. Okay, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world. He was the doorway. There was no sin in, in the world that God... Uh, Restored in Genesis 1. And death, that is, including both spiritual and physical death. Primarily, spiritual death is the penalty for sin. Physical death is the consequence of spiritual death. And so death spread to all men because all sin. That last phrase is very important, and that's what we're coming to focus on this morning. So, we introduced the doctrine of imputations. And we said that there are two categories of imputations. Category number one is real imputations. Category number two, judicial imputations. Now, I know that this is vocabulary that may be new to some of you and is a little, maybe a little difficult to grasp. 
want to read to you from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, Volume 2, page 296, chapter 20, called Imputed Sin. Now, Lewis Berry Chafer, for those of you who do not know, was a very famous Bible teacher. Uh, he started at the turn of the century. His mentor was a man by the name of Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield, C.I. Schofield, who was a decorated Confederate soldier, lawyer, alcoholic, who discovered uh, what Christ had done for him at the cross and became saved and never had a problem with alcohol again and is most famous for his Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield was Chafer's uh, mentor and teacher in his early years and uh, was instrumental in Chafer's decision to shift from being a evangelist, a music evangelist, to being a Bible teacher. He taught in numerous con Bible conferences, and he recognized the need for a biblically trained clergy, especially a clergy who understood the original languages of Greek Hebrew, in the New Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, because Chafer himself did not have any training in the original languages. So he founded a seminary in 1923 in Dallas, Texas, called Dallas Theological Seminary. Originally it was called the Evangelical Theological College. It had that name for about the first seven or eight years of its existence. And one of the fundamental hallmarks of Dallas Seminary at that time was the requirement of four years of Greek and four years of Hebrew for every single student because Chafer understood how important that was. He's turned over in his grave now because the current leadership there has reduced those requirements to one and a half semesters, I mean one and a half years of Hebrew and two years of Greek, and that is just a tragedy. One reason why I no longer recommend people to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. So they are just become infected with the, uh, a lot of human viewpoint educational philosophy, and they've lost sight of the original purpose and goals of Lewis Berry Chafer. And Chafer wanted to make sure that people understood the Bible in a very clear way, and he produced an eight-volume systematic theology. And in volume two, regarding imputation, he writes, In the matter of man's relation to God, the Bible presents three major imputations. Now, there are seven, but like most theologians, he focuses only on three. A, imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. That's what I, I'm calling Adam's original sin. Two, imputation of the sin of man to the substitute Christ, and, and three, an imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer. Then he says, imputation may be either real or judicial. Now that's just difficult terms for us to grab hold of sometimes. Then he says, and for those of you who thought we were in, in somewhat murky waters to begin with, with the terms real or judicial, now we're going to throw some mud in there to really discolor it. That which is real is the reckoning to one of that which is antecedently his, while judicial imputation is the reckoning to one of that which is not antecedently his. Now, isn't that just clear as anything to you? Now, I read that to you because I want you to understand that when I give these definitions up here, that this is not something that is just sort of generated out of the thin air, but has a long historical tradition. Men who have thought long and hard about the meaning of Scripture have had to break these things down into these categories so that we have a proper 
precise understanding of what is taking place. So we need to think about these things. The tragedy is that people today don't want to think about anything and they certainly don't want to think about their spiritual life. They just want to come and go, come to church and emote and sing a lot of good, fun songs and go home and say, my, wasn't it good to have been in the house of the Lord today? So we're going to avoid that kind of mentality here and we're going to think about our relationship with God because the Scriptures command us to renovate our thinking. And the only way to do that is, I think, to think at the risk of being redundant. Real imputations. This is where the justice of God imputes. That arrow there represents imputation. That means that God is going to reckon or give or direct or apply something to someone. He imputes under the principles of antecedents. There's that difficult word. That means that which goes prior. That which is prior. Antecedents and affinity. What does affinity mean? Affinity means that there is a correspondence or similarity. Now what we have here in terms of a real imputation in the realm of Adam's original sin is that when Adam sinned in the garden and ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that sin created instantly within him a corrupt nature which we call the sin nature. Adam's original sin is imputed to the sin nature. So you see there is a correspondence between the two. There is antecedence. When you have Adam's original sin imputed to your sin nature, it has antecedence. That means there's something prior that is related to it, and that is Adam's original sin. There is affinity between the sin of Adam and your sin nature. There's similarity. There's correspondence. You're a sinner, minus R. Adam's original sin generated the minus R within the human race. Minus R has affinity with minus R. Okay? See a few eyebrows going really hard thinking about this. Okay? That all I mean, real means there is an affinity or similarity, a correspondence between what is imputed and the target, the home. Okay? On each side of the equation, you have minus R here, minus R here. Minus R can go to minus R. That makes it a real imputation. There is harmony, there is agreement, there's similarity, there's correspondence. All those words relate. Judicial imputation, on the other hand, is where the justice of God imputes what is not antecedently one's own. Okay? Now what that means... There's no antecedents. That means there's nothing prior. That means there's not going to be my, any affinity. So it's minus affinity, minus correspondence, minus similarity. None of those things apply. There's no preceding action or event in the one to whom something is judicially imputed. But here's the subject X. There's nothing in that person's life history background which warrants the imputation. 
the imputation of Y. There is no similarity. So that when X here represents the person of Christ, who is perfect righteousness, and God is going to impute to him the sins of the world, the sins of mankind minus R, there's no correspondence between the two. There's no similarity. There's no natural home in Christ because he is impeccable. He was sinless. There's nothing in Christ that deserves this. So it's not real. There's not a true, real affinity there or correspondence. It's done simply judicially. It is a declaration of reality from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Not because like attracts like, but because God has decreed from the Supreme Court of Heaven that this is the way it is. Be handled judicially. Now, there are two judicial imputations mentioned in the Scripture. One is what we just discussed, the imputation of man's sins to Christ, who is perfect righteousness. The other judicial imputation is the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer who is minus R. That's the basis for your justification. Period. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of any hope, dream, motive, whatever. Simply because you now possess, at the point of salvation, the perfect righteousness of Christ. So those are your two judicial imputations. There are five real imputations. Human life to the soul, which we discussed last time. Now that may be difficult for some of you. That's an emotional issue for some. But you have to deal with what the Scripture says. A lot of times what the Scripture says may run contrary to our experience, and it may run contrary to our emotions, and it certainly may run contrary to certain ideas that modern man develops, whatever they are, and whichever side of the aisle they may come from. Human life is, is imputed to the soul at the point of birth. The Bible always gives the parameters of human life as birth and death. That does not mean that biological life inside the womb is irrelevant or is throwaway, but it does mean that it is biological life. There's no human soul there. There will be eventually, and God is definitely, according to Psalm 139, intimately involved with everything going on inside the womb and the development of biological life. He is involved, as theologians say, immediately rather than immediately. But nevertheless, he is involved, and therefore biological life is very, very important and needs to be treated with respect. Secondly, in terms of the second real imputation is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. The third real imputation is eternal life to the human spirit at the moment of regeneration. Fourth is blessings in time to perfect righteousness. And five is blessings in eternity to the resurrection body. Now, we're not covering most of those. We're only going to focus on the second one, which is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. And that's where we were in our conclusion last Sunday. So all of this has been merely uh, review and going over these difficult concepts again to make sure you can understand them. Repetition is important. Anything in life that we learn and learn well is a result of repetition. Just think about if you've had any musical training or dancing training or athletic training or in the military the things that were drilled into you over and over and over again might have seemed boring after a while, 
I used to hate getting up every morning an extra half hour early in order to go practice the piano, playing the same thing over and over again. But nevertheless, that's how it was drilled into me so that when the time came, no matter how nervous I was, no matter how scared I was, I could sit down at the piano at a recital and I could play exactly what I had practiced. It was firmly entrenched in muscle memory and no matter how nervous I might be, I could still perform under pressure. And that's the point. One of the greatest tragedies in churches today is that the uh, superficial philosophy of preaching that comes out of our seminaries is built around the principle that you need to teach things so people can remember them. And they'll give all kinds of statistics about how long people can remember certain things, and if they just hear it, they'll remember 20% of it for six or eight hours, and if they hear it and do it, then they'll remember uh, 40 or 50% of it for maybe uh, 24 hours, and if they, uh, or if they hear it and see it, they'll remember it maybe up to 24 hours. If they hear it, see it, and do it, then they'll remember it for maybe 48 hours. So we need to teach things so people can go home and maybe tomorrow night still give at least one principle you talked about on Sunday morning. How superficial. Doctrinal churches, we're guided by another important principle. That is, we need to teach things so you won't ever forget it. Not just so you'll remember it, but that you won't ever forget it. So when the pressure comes, when life gets tough, when adversity strikes, you won't have to... Well, what is it that Pastor Dean used to say? It's going to be there on the tip of your tongue. You're going to remember it. You will hear my voice in your mind telling you the principle. You will hear it over and over again as it's drilled in. So that may bore you while you're sitting here, but the principle is that when life gets tough and you need to apply doctrine, I want you to be able to recall it instantly and not have to try to stop. Physically alive because of the imputation of the human soul to human life to physical life, uh, soul life to, to biological life, and that results in human life. And at the same moment, we are born spiritually dead because of the imputation of Adam's original sin to the sin nature, which is point four. Adam's original sin plus a sin nature equals spiritual death, which is defined as total and absolute separation from God, no relationship whatsoever. Now, the objection that is often asked is, what could Adam's sin have to do with me? That doesn't seem fair that I would be penalized for something I had nothing to do and a decision I had nothing to do with. Because of two relationships which the Bible describes that you have with Adam. First of all, Adam is said to be the federal head of the human race. The key word to understand federal is representative. You elect a congressional representative to go to the House of Representatives and represent you. That's why we call it a federal government. Federal has to do with representation. You elect a congressman or congresswoman and they represent you. And I have no idea whatsoever who our... Uh, delegate is from this area but whoever it is their responsibility I have to learn these things now that I'm living here one one thing at a time there's so much to get adjusted to one of the things that will happen that is expected of that representative in the next few months is to make a decision 
relevant to these charges brought to the president, these allegations. Now, I don't care how, what you feel about it, I don't, and I'm getting to where I react to that term. It's not how you feel or I feel. It's what we think that matters. Aren't you getting tired of news media people constantly questioning people, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? It's irrelevant how you feel. What are the thinking? What are your reasons? That's what matters. Well, our congressional representative is going to make certain decisions related to this, and whether you agree or I agree or disagree with the decisions they make, not going to matter. Their decision is the one that counts, and that decision will be imputed to you and me whether we agree with it or not. That's what federalism is all about. So Adam is our federal head. He is our representative. As When Adam sinned, you sinned. This has to do with guilt. Real, legal guilt. Not emotional guilt or guilt feelings, but real guilt. On the other hand, each of us was seminally in Adam. This is a very important term, seminally. It comes from a word that means seed in seed form. And the passage that we have to look at to understand this is in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9. So turn with me there because this is another one of those tough little nuts that some people have a hard time cracking. Seminal relationship. This represent is re federalism is representative. Seminalism has to do with our physical relationship to Adam. He is the progenitor of the race. We all go back genetically to Adam. We are all one physically, racially in Adam. Every human being is united in Adam. Now, Hebrews 7 is part of a very intricate series of arguments presented by the writer of Hebrews in order to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Starting here, he's talking about the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. To demonstrate that Jesus Christ has a superior priesthood, he is going to claim that Jesus Christ, he is not a descendant of Levi, he is not Levitical, he is not of the tribe of Levi, which is the standard priestly tribe of Israel. But remember, Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of Judah. He was the lion of Judah, the tribe from which David came. He is a descendant of David, the Davidic monarch, and the one to whom, or to whom the Davidic covenant referred. When we come to verse 4, and the writer of Hebrews is going to make a very interesting argument. He says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoil. So here we have Melchizedek here, who is the high priest of Salem. He is a Gentile priest of the town Salem, which is later called Jerusalem or Jerusalem. So he's the, a Gentile high priest of Jerus Jerusalem. And Abraham is the traveling pilgrim, as it were, who has just defeated the five kings and captured all the spoils, and he gives a tenth 
freely of his own volition. This is never a mandate for giving. He gives a tenth of the choice spoil to Melchizedek. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law, not in the church age, but in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. In other words, it's comparison. Melchizedek wasn't related to Abraham. Levitical priests, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, third generation down. Jacob had 12, 13, uh, 12 sons. Levi was one of them, and he's the, the father of the tribe of priests. So his great-grandfather was Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is Melchizedek, he's not related at all to Abraham, he's not Jewish, he's not a Hebrew, uh, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So uh, Abraham is the lesser and he's blessed by Melchizedek who's the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, this is the verse, through Abraham, even Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now, Levi isn't even born yet. He's three generations down the road. But he is seminally in Abraham. He is of the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he is in Abraham, in the loins of Abraham. And since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, recognizing that Melchizedek was his superior, Levi, being included within the racial descendants of Abraham, is also said to have paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. That's the argument in Hebrews. That's beside our point. The point that we want to make is this illustrates that God does focus for certain matters on that seminal relationship. So our relationship to Adam is twofold. Physically, genetically, seminally, we receive a sin nature that is genetic, passed down from father to the next generation, and that is based upon a physical relationship with Adam. Then we also have a federal or representative relationship. There we get receive guilt for Adam's original sin. Seminally, we receive a sin nature genetically passed on. Adam's original sin is then federally applied to us because Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden. So what then is the basis for our condemnation? Point number one. Adam's original sin plus the sin nature equals spiritual death, which is total separation from God. Remember what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So from the instant Adam sinned, his point of contact with God shifted from the love of God to the justice of God, and the justice of God had to first be satisfied before he could bless 
man. Now, I'm going to stop here because we have quite a bit to cover under this doctrine, the basis for our condemnation. We don't have time to complete that this morning, and I just want to make sure everybody's kind of understanding the real judicial imputations before we move on. So with that, let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study these things this morning, to understand all of the dynamics of justification, imputation, forgiveness, consequences. All of these dynamics are so important to our spiritual life. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, will help us to understand these things. They will be stored in our soul, and we will be able to recall them and apply them when needed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.